Section 12 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 31 England's Honor and Jenkins' Ear, Part 2. We need not go through all the series of debates in the Lords and Commons. It is enough to say that every one of these debates made the chances of a peaceful arrangement grow less and less. The impression of the Patriots seemed to be that Walpole was to be held responsible for every evasion, every delay, every rash act, and every denial of justice on the part of Spain. With this conviction, it was clear to them that the more they attacked the Spanish government, the more they attacked and damaged Walpole. Full of this spirit, therefore, they launched out in every debate about Spanish treachery and Spanish falsehood and Spanish cruelty and Spanish religious faith in a manner that might have seemed deliberately designed to render a peaceful settlement of any question impossible between England and Spain. Yet we do not believe that the main object of the Patriots was to force England into a war with Spain. Their main object was to force Walpole out of office. They were for a long time under the impression that he would resign rather than make war. Once he resigned, the Patriots would very soon abate their war fury and try whether the quarrel might not be settled in peace with honor. But they had allowed themselves to be driven too far along the path of war, and they had not taken account of the fact that the great peace minister might, after all, prefer staying in office and making war to going out of office and leaving some rival to make it. Suddenly there came to the aid of the Patriots and their policy the portentous story of Captain Jenkins and his ear. Captain Jenkins had sailed on board his vessel the Rebecca from Jamaica for London, and off the coast of Havana he was boarded by a revenue cutter of Spain, which proceeded to subject him and his vessel to the right of search. Jenkins declared that he had been fearfully maltreated, that the Spanish officers had him hanged up at the yard-arm, and cut down when he was half dead, that they slashed at his head with their cutlasses, and hacked his left ear nearly off, and that to complete the measure of their outrages, one of them actually tore off his bleeding ear, flung it in his face, and bade him carry it home to his king, and tell him what had been done. To this savage order Jenkins reported that he was ready with a reply. I commend, he said, my soul to God, and my cause to my country." a very eloquent and telling little sentence, which gives good reason to think of what Jenkins could have done, after preparation in the House of Commons, if he could throw off such rhetoric unprepared, and in spite of the disturbing effect of having just been half-hanged and much mutilated. Jenkins showed, indeed, remarkable presence of mind in every way. He prudently brought home the severed ear with him, and invited all patriotic Englishmen to look at it skepticism itself could not for a while at all events refuse to believe that the spaniards had cut off jenkins ear when behold there was the ear itself to tell the story later on indeed skepticism did begin to assert herself were there not other ways it was asked by which englishmen might have lost an ear as well as by the fury of the hateful spaniards were there not british pillories whether Jenkins sacrificed his ear to the cause of his country abroad or to the criminal laws of his country at home, it seems to be quite settled now that his story was a monstrous exaggeration. 
if not a pure invention. Burke has distinctly stigmatized it as the fable of Jenkins' ear. The fable, however, did its work for that time. It was eagerly caught up and believed in. People wanted to believe in it, and the ear was splendid evidence. The mutilation of Jenkins played much the same part in England that the fabulous insult of the King of Prussia to the French envoy played in the France of 1870. The eloquence of Pulteney, the earnestness of Wyndham, the intriguing genius of Bolingbroke seemed only to have been agencies to prepare the way for the triumph of Jenkins and his severed ear. The outcry all over the country began to make Walpole feel at last that something would have to be done. His own constitutional policy came against him in this difficulty. He had broken the power of the House of Lords, and had strengthened that of the House of Commons. The hereditary chamber might perhaps be relied upon to stand firmly against a popular clamour, but it would be impossible to expect such firmness at such a time from an elective assembly of almost any sort. In this instance, however, Walpole found himself worse off in the House of Lords than even in the House of Commons. The House of Lords was stimulated by the really powerful eloquence of Carteret and of Chesterfield, and there was no man on the ministerial side of the House who could stand up with any effect against such accomplished and unscrupulous political gladiators. Walpole appealed to the Parliament not to take any step which would render a peaceful settlement impossible, and he promised to make the most strenuous efforts to obtain a prompt consideration of England's claims. He set to work energetically for this purpose. His difficulties were greatly increased by the unfriendly conduct of the Spanish envoy, who was on terms of confidence with the patriots, and went about everywhere declaring that Walpole was trying to deceive the English people as well as the Spanish government. It must have needed all Walpole's strength of will to sustain him against so many difficulties and so many enemies at such a crisis. It had not been his way to train up statesmen to help him in his work, and now he stood almost alone. The negotiations were further complicated by the disputes between England and Spain as to the right of English traders to cut logwood in Campeche Bay, and as to the settlement of the boundaries of the new English colonies of Florida and Carolina in North America, and the rival claims of England and Spain to this or that strip of border territory. Sometimes, however, when an international dispute has to be glossed over rather than settled to the full satisfaction of either party, it is found a convenient thing for diplomatists to have a great many subjects of disputation wrapped up in one arrangement. Walpole was sincerely anxious to give Spain a last chance, but the Spanish people on their side were stirred to bitterness and to passion by the vehement denunciations of the English opposition. Even then, when daily papers were little known to the population of either London or Madrid, people in London and in Madrid did somehow get to know that there had been fierce exchange of international dislike and defiance. Walpole, however, still clung to his policy of peace, and his influence in the House of Commons was commanding enough to get his proposals accepted there. In the House of Lords the ministry were nowhere in debate. Something, indeed, should be said for Lord Harvey, who had been raised to the upper house as Baron Harvey of Ickworth in 1733, 
and who made some speeches full of clear good sense and sound moderating argument in support of walpole's policy but carteret and chesterfield would have been able in any case to overwhelm the duke of newcastle and the duke of newcastle now was turning traitor to walpole stupid as newcastle was he was beginning to see that the day of walpole's destiny was nearly over and he was taking measures to act accordingly all that newcastle could do as secretary for foreign affairs was done to make peace impossible walpole thought the time had fully come when it would be right for him to show that while still striving for peace he was not unprepared for war he sent a squadron of line-of-battle ships to the mediterranean and several cruisers to the west indies and he allowed letters of mark to be issued these demonstrations had the effect of making the spanish government somewhat lower their tone at least they had the effect of making that government seem more willing to come to terms long negotiations as to the amount of claim on the one side and of set-off on the other were gone into both in london and madrid we need not study the figures for nothing came of the proposed arrangement it was impossible that anything could come of it england and spain were quarrelling over several great international questions even these questions were themselves only symbolical of a still greater one of a paramount question which was never put into words the question whether england or spain was to have the ascendant in the new world across the atlantic walpole and the spanish government drew up an arrangement or rather professed to find a basis of arrangement for the paying off of certain money claims a convention was agreed upon and was signed on january fourteenth seventeen thirty nine the convention arranged that a certain sum of money was to be paid by spain to england within a given time but that this discharge of claims should not extend to any dispute between the king of spain and the south sea company as holders of the asiento contract and that two plenipotentiaries from each side should meet at madrid to settle the claims of england and spain with regard to the rights of trade in the new world and the boundaries of carolina and florida this convention it will be seen left the really important subjects of dispute exactly where they were before such as it was however it had hardly been signed before the diplomatists were already squabbling over the extent and interpretation of its terms and mixing it up with the attempted arrangement of other and older disputes parliament opened on february first seventeen thirty nine and the speech from the throne told of the convention arranged with spain it is now said the royal speech a great satisfaction to me that i am able to acquaint you that the measures i have pursued have had so good an effect that a convention is concluded and ratified between me and the king of spain whereby upon consideration had of the demands on both sides the prince hath obliged himself to make reparation to my subjects for their losses by a certain stipulated payment and plenipotentiaries are therein named and appointed for redressing within a limited time all those grievances and abuses which have hitherto interrupted our commerce and navigation in the american seas and for settling all matters in dispute in such a manner as may for the future prevent and remove all new causes and pretences of complaint by a strict observance of our mutual treaties 
and a just regard to the rights and privileges belonging to each other. The king promised that the convention should be laid before the house at once. Before the terms of the convention were fully in the knowledge of Parliament, there was already a strong dissatisfaction felt among the leading men of the opposition. We need not set this down to the mere determination of implacable partisans, not to be content with anything proposed or executed by the ministers of the Crown. Sir John Bernard was certainly no implacable partisan in that sense. He was really a true-hearted and patriotic Englishman. Yet Sir John Bernard was one of the very first to predict that the convention would be found utterly unsatisfactory. There is nothing surprising in the prediction. The king's own speech, which naturally made the best of things, left it evident that no important and international question had been touched by the convention. Every dispute over which war might have to be made remained in just the same state after the convention as before. Lord Carteret, in the House of Lords, boldly assumed that the convention must be unsatisfactory and even degrading to the English people, and he denounced it with all the eloquence and all the vigor of which he was capable. Lord Harvey vainly appealed to the House to bear in mind that the convention was not yet before them. Let us read it, he urged, before we condemn it. Vain, indeed, was the appeal. The convention was already condemned. The very description of it in the speech from the throne had condemned it in advance. The convention was submitted to Parliament and made known to the country. The reception it got was just what might have been expected. The one general cry was that the agreement gave up or put aside every serious claim made by England. Spain had not renounced her right of search. The boundaries of England's new colonies had not been defined. Not a promise was made by Spain that the Spanish officials who had imprisoned and tortured unoffending British subjects should be punished or even brought to any manner of trial. In the heated temper of the public, the whole convention seemed an inappropriate and highly offensive farce. On February 23rd, the sheriffs of the City of London presented to the House of Commons a petition against the convention. The petition expressed the great concern and surprise of the citizens of London to find, by the convention lately concluded between His Majesty and the King of Spain, that the Spaniards are so far from giving up their, as we humbly apprehend, unjust pretension of a right to visit and search our ships on the seas of America, that this pretension of theirs is, among others, referred to the future regulation and decision of plenipotentiaries appointed on each side, whereby we apprehend it in some degree admitted. The petition referred to the cruel treatment of the English sailors whose hard fate has thrown them into the hands of the Spaniards and added with a curious admixture of patriotic sentiment and practical business-like selfishness that if this cruel treatment of english seamen were to be put up with and no reparation demanded it might have the effect of what does the reader think of deterring the seamen from undertaking voyages to the seas of america without an advance of wages which that trade or any other will not be able to support the same petition was presented to the House of Lords by the Duke of Bedford. Lord Carteret moved that the petitioners should be heard by themselves, and if they should desire it, by counsel. It was agreed, after some debate, that the petitioners should be heard by themselves in the first instance, and that if afterwards they desired to be heard by counsel, their request should be taken into consideration. 
lord chesterfield in the course of the debate contrived ingeniously to give a keen stroke to the convention while declaring that he did not presume as yet to form any opinion on it or to anticipate any discussion on its merits i cannot help he said saying however that to me it is a most unfavorable symptom of its being for the good of the nation when i see so strong an opposition made to it out of doors by those who are the most immediately concerned in its effects a debate of great interest animation and importance took place in the house of lords when the convention was laid before that assembly the earl of chumley moved that an address be presented to the king to thank him for having concluded the convention the address was drawn up by a very dexterous hand a master hand its terms were such as might have conciliated the leaders of the opposition if indeed these were to be conciliated by anything short of walpole's resignation for while the address approved of all that had been done thus far it cleverly assumed that all this was but the preliminary to a real settlement and by ingeniously expressing the entire reliance of the house on the king's taking care that proper provision should be made for the redress of various specified grievances it succeeded in making it quite clear that in the opinion of the house such provision had not yet been made the address concluded most significantly with an assurance to the king that in case your majesty's just expectations shall not be answered this house will heartily and zealously concur in all such measures as shall be necessary to vindicate your majesty's honour and to preserve to your subjects the full enjoyment of all those rights to which they are entitled by treaty and the law of nations an address of this kind would seem one that might well have been moved as an amendment to a ministerial address and understood to be obliquely a vote of censure on the advisers of the crown it seems the sort of address that carteret might have moved and chesterfield seconded carteret and chesterfield opposed it with spirit and eloquence upon your lordship's behaviour to-day said carteret at the close of a bitter and a passionate attack upon the ministry and the convention depends the fate of the british empire this nation has hitherto maintained her independence by maintaining her commerce but if either is weakened the other must fail it is by her commerce that she has been hitherto enabled to stand her ground against all the open and secret attacks of the enemies to her religion liberties and constitution it is from commerce my lords that i behold your lordships within these walls a free and independent assembly but should any considerations influence your lordships to give so fatal a wound to the interest and honour of this kingdom as your agreeing to this address it is the last time i shall have occasion to trouble this house for my lords if we are to meet only to give a sanction to measures that overthrow all our rights i should look upon it as a misfortune for me to be either accessory or witness to such a compliance i will not only repeat what the merchants told your lordships that their trade is ruined i will go further i will say the nobility is ruined the whole nation is undone for i can call this treaty nothing else but a mortgage of your honour a surrender of your liberties such language may now seem too overwrought and extravagant to have much effect upon an assembly of practical men but it was not language likely to be considered overwrought and extravagant at that time and during that crisis the opposition had positively worked themselves into the belief 
that if the convention were accepted the last day of england's strength and prosperity and glory had come carteret besides was talking to the english public as well as to the house of lords he knew what he meant when he denounced the enemies of england's religion as well as the enemies of england's trade the imputation was that the minister himself was a secret confederate of the enemies of the national religion as well as the enemies of the national trade men who but a few short years before were secretly engaged in efforts at a stuart restoration which certainly would not be an event much in harmony with the spread of the protestant faith in england were now denouncing walpole every day on the ground that he was caballing with catholic spain the spain of philip the second the spain of the armada and the inquisition the implacable enemy of england's national religion the duke of argyle made a most vehement speech against the proposed address he dealt a sharp blow against the ministry when he declared that the whole convention was a french and not a spanish measure he said he should never be persuaded that fear of aught that could be done by spain could have induced ministers to accept this thing you call a convention it is the interest of france that our navigation and commerce should be ruined we are the only people in the world whom france has reason to be apprehensive of in america and every advantage that spain gains in point of commerce is gained for her so far as i can judge from the tenor of our late behaviour our dread of france has been the spring of all our weak and ruinous measures to this dread we have sacrificed the most distinguishing honour of this kingdom this dread of france has changed every maxim of right government among us there is no measure for the advantage of this kingdom that has been set on foot for these many years to which she has not given a negative there is no measure so much to our detriment into which she has not led us he scornfully declared that what the reasons of ministers might be for this pusillanimity he could not tell for my lords though i am a privy councillor i am as unacquainted with the secrets of the government as any private gentleman that hears me then he told an anecdote of the late lord peterborough when lord peterborough was asked by a friend one day his opinion of a certain measure says my lord in some surprise this is the first time i ever heard of it impossible says the other why you are a privy councillor so i am replies his lordship and there is a cabinet councillor coming up to us just now if you ask the same question of him he will perhaps hold his peace and then you will think he is in the secret but if he opens once his mouth about it you will find he knows as little of it as i do no my lords exclaimed the duke of argyle it is not being in privy council or in cabinet council one must be in the minister's council to know the true motives of our late proceedings the duke concluded his oration characteristically with a glorification of his own honest and impartial heart the address was sure to be carried walpole's influence was still strong enough to accomplish that much but everybody must already have seen that the convention was not an instrument capable of satisfying or indeed framed with any notion of satisfying the popular demands of england it was an odd sort of arrangement partly international and partly personal an adjustment or attempted adjustment here of a dispute between states and there of a dispute between rival trading companies the reconstituted south sea company which had now become one of the three great trading companies of england 
the East India Company and the Bank, being the other two, had all manner of negotiations, arrangements, and transactions with the King of Spain. All these affairs now became mixed up with the national claims and were dealt with alike in the convention. The British plenipotentiary at the Spanish court was, still further to complicate matters, the agent for the South Sea Company. The convention provided that certain set-off claims of Spain should be taken into consideration, as well as the claims of England. Spain had some demands against England for the value of certain vessels of the Spanish navy attacked and captured during the reign of George I without a declaration of war. The claim had been admitted in principle by England, and it became what would be called in the law courts only a question of damages. Then the convention contained some stipulations concerning certain claims of Spain upon the South Sea Company, that is, on what was, after all, only a private trading company. When the anomaly was pointed out by Lord Carteret and others in the House of Lords, and it was asked how came it that the English plenipotentiary at the court of Spain was also the agent of the South Sea Company, it was ingeniously answered on the part of the government that nothing could be more fitting and proper, seeing that as English plenipotentiary he had to act for England with the King of Spain, and as agent for the South Sea Company to deal with the same sovereign in that sovereign's capacity as a great private merchant. Therefore, the national claims were made, to a certain extent, subservient to or dependent on the claims of the South Sea Company. Whether we may think the claims of the English merchants and seamen were exaggerated or not, one thing is obvious, they could not possibly be satisfied under such a convention. The debate in the House of Lords was carried on by the opposition with great spirit and brilliancy. Lord Harvey defended the policy of the government with dexterity. Possibly he made as much of the case as could be made of it. The motion for the address was carried by 71 votes against 58, a marked increase of strength on the part of the opposition. It is to be recorded that the Prince of Wales gave his first vote in Parliament to support the opposition. The name of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales is the first in the division list of the peers who voted against the address and in favour of the policy of war. There was nothing very mutinous in Frederick's action, so far as the King was concerned. Very likely Frederick would have given the same vote no matter what the King's views on the subject. But everyone knew that George was eager for war, that he was fully convinced of his capacity to win laurels on the battlefield, and that he was longing to wear them. A Bonaparte prince of our own day was described by a French literary man as an unemployed Caesar. King George believed himself an unemployed Caesar, and was clamorous for early employment. End of section 12